Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. Amen. Good morning, guys. Good to see you. We got, we got some folks back. Yeah? This looks more like the, the way our family looks from Sunday to Sunday. This is good. It's good to see everybody. Um, thank you for that song. Um, I, I don't know if you guys have heard that song before, but, man, I, I wanted to make sure that, that, that Brian had an opportunity to share that with us. It's very powerful. And it's essentially today's message, okay? It's weird things are happening with the mic. There we go. Got it? Um, we are doing a study, and we're coming to the very end of our study uh, on what it means to be a righteous remnant. And uh, our base text has been Ezekiel chapter 14, and we've been doing character studies on all of the men that are mentioned in that chapter as being particularly righteous in a time period that's particularly wicked, right? Men that stood out. And we looked at the life of Noah, and we saw how he stood out in a world that was in opposition to what he believed, right? There, a whole entire world that, that, that stood up against the God that he worshipped and defied that God, and, jo and Noah stood alone, right? And then we looked at Daniel, and Daniel lived in, a, in an age and in a culture that was that was in opposition to God. There was wicked men who tried to sift him and, and to change and alter the way that he believed. And, and they even used the, the letter of the law to, uh, to inhibit him from worship. And he defied them, right? Uh, risked his own life in his faith. And now we have Job. And Job is particularly unique. He's a little bit different. Job, for us, pictures what it looks like to be the righteous remnant in tribulation and suffering. Now, the Word of God promises that every Christian who lives for God is going to face suffering and tribulation. It's a part of it. In fact, Paul says that he wants to know what it's like to, to be a part of the fellowship of suffering. He's longing for it. He desires it. He wants to be a partaker in everything that Christ suffered on the cross. He wants to be a part of that. He wants to be in that. He wants to be found in Christ, both in the rejoicing and the inheritance, but also in the difficulty of living a Christian life. Now, the thing for us is we're, we're being sifted in all those ways. Satan is hoping to pull us away that, that we might not be righteous in our remnancy. He wants to pull us away that we might look like the, the rest of the world. And, he's, and he is at war against us in this way all of the time. And if we're honest with ourselves, we fall prey to it quite often. We find ourselves looking just like the lost world all the time. And we have to be defiant, and we have to stand strong, and we have to be full of faith, and we have to learn how to endure difficulty. We have to, because it will only increase in our life. The more we press into Christ, the more that the difficulty will increase, the more the trial will come, the more, the more tribulation that we'll face, the more we stand out into the fray. Does that make sense? And so today we're going to see Job's life again, and we're going to look at, we're going to try to finish out Job, I mean, Job is 42 chapters. We did an introduction in chapter 1. We're going to try to finish out the book of Job today. But today we're going to see how God interjects himself into Job's circumstance. And in a moment of doubt, he reminds Job that he's way bigger than our situations and our sufferings 
and that he deserves our trust. Okay? You with me? We're going to move fast. I need, you to, I need you to hang in there, focus, take notes, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we worship you today. We need you. Uh, Lord, I don't, I don't have the ability uh, to clearly communicate this in my flesh. Uh, I don't know how to do it. I've agonized over it. I've struggled over it to figure out what's the way to do this. And so, Lord, I need your spirit. I need you to help me today because this great people, these people that I, I long to serve today, uh, Lord, we need you. We need to stand in awe of you. We need, to, we need to be at your feet because ultimately that's the only way that we can get through this life is to, is to lay hold on the rock, to hide ourselves in the cleft of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we need you to teach us how to have greater faith, how to love you more intimately, to fear you more reverently, and, Lord, to trust you that we, would, that we would put everything in, we'd be all in, and that, n- that nothing that, that would befall us in this life, anything that would come up against us, Lord, that none of it would cause us to flee, that we would never lay charge against you, that we would never doubt you, but, Lord, we would just simply know you and live for you in every aspect of our life. That's what we need. Teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So last time we were together, we found Job, a righteous man who loved God, facing the trial of his life. Satan sought to steal away his faith, and God was even willing to let him try. Remember that? Pretty amazing. Job lost his wealth, and he lost the lives of his children, all ten of them dead. And his circumstances were absolutely horrific. I mean, beyond anything any of us have ever endured. And very few people, very few Christians, would know how to respond to this kind of trial. But as we've seen, the righteous remnant, those determined to walk against the grain in order to follow God, those types of people, they just think differently, don't they? The righteous remnant thinks differently. They have insight that others don't have. And so they don't respond to things the way that others might. You understand? And so Job's response to the horror of his circumstances was not anger. It was not confrontation. Job didn't hire a a lawyer to sue the the Chaldeans who'd come and stolen away his property. Right? Right? He didn't make away in his flesh. He didn't form an army to hunt hunt down the Sabians that had perpetrated against him. He didn't devise some sort of grand plan. No, Job saw his circumstances were beyond physical answers. There was nothing in his flesh that he could do to fight against what had happened to him. There was nothing that he could do in his power to get back all the things that he lost. He was at a loss for words. He had nothing left, and he had no choice as a righteous remnant but to get low before a holy and righteous and high God. And instead of focusing on physical answers, he looked to the spiritual realm. He looked beyond his life. 
He looked beyond this environment, this atmosphere. He looked towards the heavens. He thought in spiritual ways. And in Job chapter 1 verse 20 it says, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down, uh, fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. And so his response was only spiritual. To humble himself before God. And to see things in spiritual terms. Now check this out. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. That's the perspective of the righteous remnant. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when our obedience is fulfilled. For the believer, we must be able to reconcile the fact that our conflict is not with flesh and blood, but with a spiritual enemy who wages physical, emotional, and intellectual war against us constantly. You understand? Satan is relentless in his desire to stir our emotions away from God, distract our thoughts away from the Lord, to get us to focus on physical things. And if we focus on physical things, then we've lost, you understand? We've lost. If our mind and our heart are bound up in this material world, then we are useless for Jesus Christ. This is the warfare. And if anybody had an excuse to think that way and to say, woe is me, look at all the things that I lost, that would be Job. And yet, and yet, in spite of all of that, he turns to the Lord and he thinks on spiritual things. The righteous remnant responds to suffering from a spiritual perspective with humility and supplication because the remnant knows that spiritual battles are waged on our knees. That's how we wage war in the spiritual realm. Job knew that whatever was, going, whatever was going on that he couldn't see in the invisible world, right? Whatever, whatever conflict was taking place behind the scenes that he wasn't privy to, whatever that was, it was best addressed with prayer, humility. Now, I wonder, do we, do we actually know that? Like for our own lives, do we actually know that? I mean, I, the counseling load that I have right now in ministry would suggest that a lot of people are struggling with a lot of things. A lot of different, a, a lot of different emotional issues. A lot of different issues of, of family and, and finance and, and difficulty and what am I going to do with school and where am I going to live and, 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 and what am I going to do next? A lot of those types of questions. And I wonder how many of us actually know what it looks like to humble ourselves before the Lord with no answers in mind, with no desire to, to presume upon God, but just to come before him and ask him, God, will you, will you stand with me? Will you be with me in this moment? 
Will you do the things that only you know how to do? I don't, I don't want to tell you or force my will upon you or, or to, to cry and moan about what I desire, what I deserve. How much, how much of our prayer lives is caught up in what we think we deserve? And the funny thing about prayers, prayers of asking things that, that are just desirous, fleshly, passionate things of the heart of, the, of our life, the material things, so many of those prayers are made really flippantly before the Lord. Very few prayers that are done on our knees, contrite, in a posture of humility, can be, can be very fleshly. It's funny how that works. It's funny how the lower you get to the ground, the more you actually understand who God is. Now, because it was spiritual war, and Satan's objective was to get the righteous man, Job, to forsake God, even though Job responds the right way, Satan's not done. There's a counter, right? There's a counterattack. Okay, what I did, I, 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 I destroyed everything that he had. I took his wealth, I took his family, and he's still worshiping the Lord. So he's got another plan. And in Job chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? Right, does this sound familiar? That there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and sheweth evil. So despite all of the, like all of the things that, that God could say about Job in the first chapter, despite all that had happened to him, he can say those exact same things about Job in the second chapter. Who in here is like that? <laughs> How unwavering do you have to be? I mean, so many of us, just the, the simplest thing happens to us, can throw us off course so easily and we begin to doubt God. Man, shame on us. Verse 4, and, said, and Satan answered the Lord and said, skin, oh, I'm sorry. He, so he's, he's giving, he's, God is offering Job to Satan once again. And Satan says, uh, skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto, the, unto his crown, the top of his head. And he, Job, took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. So the boils, these boils are covering his entire body. And he has no way of relieving himself other than to just to scratch and to scrape at these boils with, with broken pieces of pottery to relieve the pain. I mean, this is, this is nuts. I mean... This is a, a level of tribulation that God allowed Job to endure that we might see something. We have to get perspective here. We have to understand that our tribulations, the ones that we face in this life, first of all, they don't compare to this. If anybody had the right to say, woe is me, it was this man right here. 
So first of all, we need to get perspective. But second of all, there's something about what's about to happen that we need to learn from, and it's going to be crucial. And we cannot forget it, because if we're going to survive this world and the trial and the suffering that co comes along with following Jesus Christ, then we have to know where to go to get hope. We've got to know where to go to lay hold on grace in the midst of our trial. So in Satan's hypothesis here is that, that if we touch his flesh, okay, so I took these things away from him, it didn't do much, but if I touch his flesh and I cause him to suffer physically in his flesh, that he's got to deny God. Because no, no men can endure that. Now here's the deal. One thing's for sure. If Satan couldn't distract Job, guess what? You know what the weakness was? You know what the weakness for Job was? It was his friends. Of all things, after all he'd gone through, all the suffering that he'd gone through, at the end of the day, the thing that causes him to doubt, the thing that causes him to struggle, are the words of his friends. Let's look at that. Let's look at that. So shortly after Job is afflicted, three of his closest friends show up, and they sit with him in silent mourning for seven days. That's a big deal, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a wake, uh, you know, or a visitation after a funeral, but that time is so important for family members when someone is, has died to have that connection with other people, and so you go and you weep with them, and it's a very powerful time. Um, but these friends, these are, these are good friends. They came and they sat with him for seven days in the ashes. They just sat with him in silence just to be with him and to mourn with him. I mean, that, those are serious friends, right? These are loyal friends. And at the end of these seven days, these men begin to share their counsel with Job. And they're convinced that they're providing him with invaluable spiritual insight. Right? They're convinced of that. These are pious men. They're spiritual men. Now, I want to say something, because we're not going to get into it. But, all, but this book des deserves so much study. The things that, that these men say are mind-boggling. It's, it's mind-boggling. These men have insight into the natural world, into cosmology and the makeup of our universe that predates scientific discovery, in some cases, by millennia. You understand? They're, they're saying things. In 1800 BC, they have insights that, science is, that science didn't discover until the Enlightenment. Okay? So these men, these men are wise, and they're spiritual, and, and from all accounts, everything that they're saying seems true on the surface. But here's the deal. With all that in mind, you read the oration of Job's three friends. And you begin to discover that regardless of how brilliant they are, regardless of how pious they are, regardless of how much they understood about the universe, all of this knowledge, and none of them are actually wise. I mean, with all the things that they had to say, I mean, there's so much that you can read from what they say, and you can apply it to your life. 
Like you can read what these men say and you can say to yourself, wow, that's, that's insight right there. And yet they lacked wisdom. And so I want to point something out to you real quick. This is super important. This is important as a counseling principle. This is important in terms of a growth principle. It's not how much you know about God, but how well you know God that counts. I mean, there's so many of us. Don't we all just want to learn everything that there is to know about the Bible? I mean, to have knowledge of this book, man, that's, that's a powerful thing, isn't it? I mean, I want to know more about this book. And I know a lot of you are in that same place. You're in LFBI because you're trying to learn. You're trying to grow. You're trying to put this book inside you. And that's right. That's the right thing to do. But here's the deal. All of your knowledge, all of your knowledge without humility and faith is vanity, is vanity, is worthless. See, all the things that these men knew, that goes way beyond our understanding, that seems prophetic in nature, and yet, the only thing that they sow into the life of Job is doubt and distraction. So these men, they're speaking. And they all essentially present the same idea. They're all saying basically the same, same thing. All of these men, chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, they're speaking, they're talking, they're, count, they're counseling, they're ministering to Job. And they all basically say, say the same thing, and it's this. Job, you wouldn't be suffering like this unless you have unconfessed sin in your life. That's it. That's basically what they, they have is that all of this trial that you're suffering, that's, that's got to have something to do with the fact that you've got some sort of wicked thing that you're hiding in your life. Listen to what they say. Eliphaz, his friend Eliphaz, says in Job chapter 5, verse 2, For wrath killeth the foolish man, and envy slayeth the silly one. I have seen the, uh, uh, the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. In other words, Job, I've seen your pride. And I've seen your foolishness for years in little ways in your life. Little things. I've seen it. I've seen it creeping in. And all this trouble you face, this is just God paying you back. His second friend, Bildad, says in Job chapter 8, verse 2, How long wilt thou speak these things? And how long shall the words of thy mouth be a strong wind? Doth God pervert judgment? Or doth the Almighty pervert justice? If thy children have sinned against him... And he has cast them away for their transgression. If thou wouldest seek unto God betimes and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would, he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. In other words, he's saying God is just. And it's clear that if you sin against God, there's going to be a consequence. Your suffering must be related to something you and your children did. Because if God is just, he wouldn't allow this to happen. So that's, that's his boy Bildad. His third friend Zophar says in Job chapter 11, verse 1, Then answered Zophar the Namathite and said, and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed? 
For thou hast said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thy eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee, and that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that there are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of these less than thine iniquity deserveth. In other words, he calls Job a dirty freaking liar. And if God was here right now, he would show you that you deserve even more suffering than what you're getting. Okay. So these are actually some pretty crappy friends. Right? And the truth is, if you read through all this, you're looking at it and you're like, man, this, this stuff looks true. Like, this is a pretty good argument. But at the end of the day, the end of the day, these friends are causing Job to stumble. Proverbs 17.9 says that he, covereth the trans, uh, he that co- uh, covereth the transgression, he that covereth a transgression <laughs> seeketh love. And he that repeateth the matter separateth very friends. In other words, a good friend covers up transgression with grace. But bad friends, they rehearse over and over and over again all the ways that they think you're wrong. See, these three men with the best intentions are unknowingly used by Satan to discourage and trouble Job. And Satan uses them to take Job's eyes off the spiritual realm. Some of y'all have friends like this. And they're not even smart, like these guys are, right? Like old high school friends. Hey, what you doing this weekend? Right? And you've got friends in your life that have the ability, because you've given it to them, to take your eyes off spiritual things. So between each of these sermonettes, we see Job is beginning to do something awful. He's beginning to defend himself. In Job chapter 12, verse 11, he says, Doth not the ear try words and the mouth taste his meat? In other words, guys, can't you understand or discern what I'm trying to say to you? I haven't done anything wrong. I've told you that over and over and over again. I don't don't know what the deal is. And Job makes a case for his own righteousness that lasts until chapter 32. Key point number two. Did we cover key point number one? We didn't. I skipped it, didn't I? Did you write it down, though? Did you guys write it down? It should have been on the screen. I can't see. They don't, these guys never want to put my notes up here on the back screen. So I actually don't know what's going on. I have to turn around like this to know where we're at. Okay, let's go back. Key point number one, just briefly. This is what we covered before. The righteous remnant's victory is dependent on knowing the warfare is spiritual. Makes sense? I mean, that's what we've been talking about, right? The righteous remnant's victory is dependent on knowing that the warfare is spiritual, not carnal or physical, right? Okay, but here's the problem. Key point number two, the righteous remnant falters when they feel they must defend themselves. This is where the faltering begins to happen. How often do we as God's righteous remnant fall prey to this same tendency? Defending ourselves everywhere we go. Okay, so 
So the lost world, they want to entrap you in political conversations. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get your eyes off the priority of souls, aren't they? All of this chatter that's happening, all the stuff in the media, scrolling and the scrolling and the scrolling and all these things that you're looking at, all this chatter going on, all it seeks to do is to deter you from the thing you're supposed to be focused on, and that's souls, and they're effective at it, and you let them do it. And you get bolstered up inside, and you get frustrated, and you're like, I can't, I can't believe this, what they're saying. Oh. You think it's holy indignation you've got going on in your heart, and the truth is you're just distracted. That's not a holy anger. Don't lie to yourself. You're distracted. You're distracted. Friends and family, when they want to argue with you, or maybe even make fun of you because of what you believe, you believe the Bible, you're a Christian, you got family members like that. I know, I mean, I talk to you. There's some of you in the room. You've got family members and friends that think what you believe is ridiculous. And what are you going to do? Are you going to defend yourself? You're going to argue with them, fight with them, prove yourself right? You're distracted. You're distracted. Even Christians might put you on blast. Yeah? Oh, you go to that Baptist church. Oh, Baptists. <laughs> Here's why Baptists are stupid. <laughs> right? Like, oh, you read, you read what version of the Bible? <laughs> You're backwards. I mean, this is, this is the world we live in, right? This is the world we live in. That's a distraction. That's a distraction. And if you get caught in the cycle of defending yourself at every moment, what can you possibly get done in terms of worship? If your heart and your mind are always being stolen away with some sort of response that you need to, get, to give to defend yourself in the flesh, man... Where is God? Where are his purposes? Where is your time at his feet? What happened to the richness of those days that Job spent seven days before the feet of God and suddenly that's interrupted just like that and they spend 32 chapters arguing? looking for counsel, looking for an answer. Listen, the moment you move from a perspective of spiritual warfare into a perspective of physical warfare, then you're going to find yourself defending your integrity in the flesh. Who you are, what you've done, what you can do, what you're desirous of, how you think, how you believe, what philosophies you hold to, what degrees you have, what job you have, what people think about you, what family thinks about you, what you're doing from day to day, what you've got to achieve. That's the slippery slope that we're talking about. And it all begins with you feeling like you need to defend yourself, that you need to be right. You don't make you right. God makes you right. Amen. What kind of right do you want to be? And once you start defending yourself, then your true purpose will begin to waver and you're in danger 
of offending God. That's the sin of Job, is that he got distracted. And he offended God. Don't let Satan take your eyes off the spiritual reality within your physical circumstances. Okay, so for a moment, assess your life. Think about yourself for a moment. Think about the things you're struggling with. Don't for a moment let Satan convince you that it's a physical issue that you face. Because there's a spiritual reality underneath that. And you've got to get there. And when you get there, you know your only answer lies with being with God. So we don't have time to talk about Elihu. Elihu's only the, the only wise counselor in the bunch. Even he's a little bit angry. But here's the thing that I want to point out. These men argue for three quarters of this book only to agree to disagree. That was productive. Right? Only to get to a place where they agree to disagree. They're tired, they're worn out, and they're more confused than they were before they started talking. Much talking, right? Leads to confusion. Now, as these men sit looking at each other, and the dust from their argument begins to settle, suddenly they find themselves in the midst of a whirlwind. Can you imagine that? I mean, come on. I mean, if the book wasn't already a trip, right? These guys are sitting around and suddenly, what I, what I would say is, if I was to refer to it as a tornado, I think that would do it an injustice. Study out the whirlwind. I mean, the whirlwind is what carries Enoch, or it carries Elijah, sorry, to heaven, right? Delivers him raptures him from the earth in a whirlwind. It's crazy, the whirlwind, like this, this wind that's like consuming itself. And, and this, this whirlwind comes and enters into the situation and a voice comes out from it. And from the midst of the whirlwind, God speaks. Job chapter 38, verse one says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words Without knowledge. Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Okay, hold on a second. This is worth like just addressing for a second. See, after all that, that God has allowed Job to endure, all the difficulty that he's faced throughout this story, right? I mean, the guy is like laying there in ashes. He's got nothing left. He's got boils from head to toe. The, the first words we hear God utter to him are essentially pull up like your sleeves like a man. Get your stuff together. You're going to answer me now. Like, where's the merciful God? Where's the tender God? Where did he... That's, that's how God chooses to respond. Now listen to me. It sounds tough, and it goes against our sensibilities in 2020. You know, we like to talk a lot about empathy. God's not being very empathetic right now, right? See, what he's trying to do and what he's about to do is he is going to rattle Job's cage. 
And he is going to shake him free from these distractions in order to draw him back into the throne room of worship. Because that's what Job needs. And listen to me, I want to suggest to you, that's what we need. There's room for empathy, there's room for counsel, there's room for sitting down and talking about things. But at the end of the day, what we need is we need to be awestruck by God. I love the word awestruck. Because what it suggests is that in order to believe that God is awesome, we need to be struck upside the head. And so what we see here is God is coming before him, before him, and he's going to ask him a series of questions. This is the hardest critique that Job has ever faced in his entire life. He's about to unleash the most serious array of questions that we could even imagine. This is God's wake-up call. Verse 4. Where, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Here's another question. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? In other words, who measured out and outfitted the earth? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Guys, there's so much here. Or who laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the sea with, with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? When I made the cloud the garment thereof and the thickness or the thick darkness of swaddling band for it and break up for it my, my decreed place and, and set bars and doors and said hitherto shalt thou come but no further. Here shall thy proud waves be stayed. Now, if we were to look at this passage, we could spend hours upon hours breaking down what God is implying here. The idea that, that, that things in the universe and in the earth are fastened together by laws and, and the idea of the earth having a cornerstone. and like. But the point is that God comes out of nowhere and he begins laying these questions, questions about creation, questions about the waters, questions about the sunlight, questions about mysterious places in the earth that men have never seen, questions about weather patterns, questions about the heavens, questions about animals. The mind's most boggling rhetorical questions and, and statements spattered throughout, things that we can't even get our head around. And Job is listening, struck, shook, staring into the whirlwind, his imagination fixing on all the things that God is saying. I almost imagine that God is speaking. He's allowing, he's allowing Job to see the heavens, and he's, uh, he's revealing all of these truths, and there's, a, vi there's a, a, a visual in front of him, and his imagination is running all over the place, and he's trying to fix his mind on all the things that God is saying, and when all of it's said and done, he has nothing else to do but to stand in silence before God. 
And the questions that were going in his mind when he was talking with his friends and they're conversing and, and he's trying to defend himself, all those things begin to fade away. They begin to disappear. They begin to dissipate as he looks at the face of God and who he truly is. And to all this, Job has only one response. Job chapter 40, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, after all this, chapter after chapter, you, you can read it yourself. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? What are you going to teach me, is what he said. What are you going to tell me that I don't already know? He that reproveth God, let him answer. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer, yea, twice. But I will proceed no further. Key point number three. The heart of the righteous remnant is stilled by remembering God's unsearchable power. Why is that so important? Why is that so important for a righteous remnant to know? Why? I mean, why? Ezekiel chapter 14, why Job? Has anybody in here ever struggled with having a still heart and mind? I mean, have any of you ever felt distracted in your relationship with God? Have you ever felt like you've had a million questions for God and it doesn't seem like there's a single answer to any of it? And you've got to sit and you've got to wait and you're looking up to, up to heaven and you're asking all these questions and you're struggling with patience before God? Have you ever felt that way? Everybody has. The point of that, this is, though, that that's dangerous. Placing demands on God is a very dangerous thing to do. And the only answer to that is to be stilled in our heart and our mind by remembering who God really, really, really is. Who he really, really is. In his mystery, in his majesty. Just sit and contemplate what is the throne room of God? What is it? What are his laws and what are his ways and what does he do and what does he think? And then you go and you look at the Proverbs and you look at the Psalms and you stare at him and you listen to him and you listen to his poetry and you hear the words that he has to say and his love letters to you and you just, it's just even more and more unfathomable unfathomable it's it's hard to even he just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and his vastness just becomes so much more superior to ours and we look at our lives and we look at who he, who he is and in contrast one to the other we discover that we are only just vile that we are only just worms that we are only just dust in the wind that we are only but a vapor, that we are only just the flower of the grass ready to just fade away. And our life will go like this, and you will waste it. 
You have the ability to waste your life with worthless questions and worthless thoughts and worthless pursuits. You could do that. But the righteous remnant knows that if they stand before God in awe of who he is, that he will give us purpose and he will give us grace and he will take us through the suffering and we can be something and we can be worth something in heaven. We can have a reward. We can have an inheritance. We can do something that lasts, that matters. You understand? But it's going to take you getting your eyes off your circumstances and off your distractions and off your questions and you've got to look at God. You've got to stare at his face. You've got to know him intimately. You have to be awestruck by him. But in a wicked and perverse generation, we're too busy scrolling through Instagram for any of that to matter. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The weight of our desires and distresses suddenly shrink when we know these truths. When we can see him clearly, when we can see the spiritual reality, and the remnant is driven away from the world and towards the throne room of worship, God isn't done. Job chapter forty-two, verse one. Then Job answered. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, in, in the next few chapters, all the way up to chapter forty-two, God continues to talk about all these crazy things, and at the end of all of that, we don't have time to get into it. Job chapter forty-two, verse one. Then Job answered the Lord and said, "I know that thou canst do everything." And then no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, I will speak. I will demand of thee. In other words, I will call to thee and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes, my eye seeth. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So he's back to chapter 2. You understand? God jarred his memory. He got him back to thinking right. Now let me go back to the place of ashes. Let me put myself low before thee. He's recovered himself. Luke chapter 5 verse 8 when, when, uh, it says when Simon Peter saw it, the, the miracles of Christ, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, that's the right perspective. Who are you? Who are you? You think you deserve to be used by God? You think you deserve his grace? You think you're qualified somehow, like you did something to earn his favor? You haven't done jack squat. And you don't amount to anything, lest he do it through you. Lest he use you. Lest his power and his might and his grace be reflected through your life. You are worthless. I don't know how to get around that. And if you forget that, then the world will own you. And once that takes place, man, I, we, we don't have time to cover it, but once that happens, God says to Job, he says, hey, look, 
So that's what I wanted. And now, now that you're in a place of contrition, and now that you're seeing rightly, I need you to do something. I need you to make sacrifice and pray for your friends because their hearts are, aren't right. And so I want you to pray for them. And I want you to gather. I want you to have a prayer meeting. I want you to lay hands on them. And I want you to show them love. And I want you to pray on their behalf. Would you do that? And so Job of a right mind, he goes back into spiritual warfare and he begins to pray and he prays for his friends. And then as that time concludes, God begins to reinstate and restore everything that Job lost. It's crazy. The tender mercy of God comes and interjects itself at the right moment and the right time as soon as Job has learned the lesson that he needs to learn. As soon as he truly understands who God is, God is there and he's ready with tender mercy. And the righteous remnant has to understand that, that God is a rewarder of those who live justly and righteously. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He is. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, which leads us to our last and final point. point. Whatever loss is suffered along the way, anybody suffered loss in your Christian life? Just show of hands. I've suffered loss along the way. It was painful, it was hurtful. The loss of a family member, the loss of a friend, the loss of, of, of some sort of position, difficulty, strife, pain, affliction, in my flesh, disease. I've lost things along the way. Whatever loss is suffered along the way, the righteous remnant will one day be blessed beyond comparison. Hold tight. Seek him diligently. Pursue his face. Be contrite. Don't be presumptuous in the questions that you ask. Be careful with your words before the living God. Enter his throne room with humility. Desire to know him before, the, before you desire to have your questions answered. James chapter 5, verse 10 says, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy, which endure. You understand? This is endure. We're talking about endurance. We're talking about endurance. Yea, have heard of the patient. Uh, be, uh, sorry, behold, we count them happy, which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and tender, and of tender mercy. In other words, we worship a God who is tender towards us. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten you. He's never forgotten you. He couldn't forget you. He hasn't turned his eye away from you. He loves you. Here's the deal. It's hard to sustain our awe of God, isn't it, from day to day? We are easily distracted with vain questions. We're easily convinced of our own righteousness, aren't we? Our worship before God expires so easily. And even in our most inspired moments with God, they're fleeting, they're temporal, they're easily exhausted, aren't they? Yesterday was awesome with the Lord, but today, today's crap. Man, the worship service was awesome today, but now I'm thinking about fleshly things an hour later. See, what Job's story teaches us is that God is God. Whether or not we understand or acknowledge him, it doesn't change the fact that God is God. He's the creator of all things. And he goes beyond our collective imagination. 
And what we must learn from Job is that being a righteous remnant means that God's glory is unconditional. It existed long before us, before we were ever conscious, and it will extend into eternity. It goes beyond us. And the righteous remnant must have no agenda outside of exalting him. Are you distracted by your circumstances? We don't have time for the worship team to come up, okay? But we're going to have a little invitation right here. You understand? We don't, need, we don't need a song to do this. Grab a hold of a friend and pray. Here's the questions you need to ask yourself. Are you distracted by your circumstances today? Are you tired of defending your honor, integrity, and integrity before men? Are you tired of doing that, defending yourself? Has your worship of God gotten lost in the questions of life? Let's take a moment right now and consider Christ. That while he suffered greatly, he remained unwavering in his honor of God, didn't he? All the way to the cross, God honored, or Jesus Christ honored his Father in heaven. All the way. That there wasn't anything he wasn't willing to endure. Is that true of you? Let's take time right now as we close to just pray. Grab somebody and pray. And ask that the Lord would restore your awe of him. That you would be able to clearly see his face. That you would no longer be distracted by the fleshly things of this world, the material things of this world, the temporal things of this world. Your life is going to be gone just like that. And you want to know that it counts. And it will only count if you choose to worship God for who he is. Got it? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We need you. Be with us as we close right now. There are things that you're doing in our life. There's things in which we, we've been holding on to, things that, that impede our vision of who you are, that get in the way, that, that, that fog our, our perspective. Lord, would you clear the air? Would you allow us to die to those things? Would you give us the strength to endure all suffering? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed. But please, don't leave unless you pray with somebody. If you got something on your heart that you're burdened with, let's deal with that right now, okay?